0: Hello, everyone. Welcome back to Babylon 5 vs. Deep Space Nine, the podcast. You can follow us on Twitter at b 5 vsds We're available on all major and most minor podcatchers. Please like and subscribe on your podcatcher of choice. If you have a question about either show or anything else you'd like us to tackle, leave a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or any other podcatcher. Take a screenshot and email the screenshot and your question to us at b5bsds9 at gmail.com, and we will answer your question live on the show. We plan to start a Patreon with bonus content in the near future, so if you have any ideas of stuff you'd like to see for bonus episodes, please hit us up again at email at b5bsds9 at gmail.com. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Babylon 5 versus Deep Space Nine podcast. This is uh, Bob from Cascadia. I got Matt from the Southland on the line. How are you doing today, Matt?
1: Doing pretty well. Doing good. Watched a really good episode of uh, Babylon 5 last night with war, War Prayer, so I'm excited to talk about it.
0: Yeah, yeah. Today we're covering uh, Babylon 5, Season 1, Episode 7, War Prayer, which uh, premiered on the 9th of March, 1994. And then uh, we're following up with uh, DS9, Season 1, Episode 19, Duet, um, which premiered on the 13th of June, 1993. Uh, Duet is largely thought to be one of the best uh, episodes of DS9, but uh, our, our take might surprise you, so stay tuned, stay tuned. Matt, do you want to kick us off, uh, talk us through the A-plot of War Prayer?
1: Sure. There's a, a growing anti-ali- anti-alien human group, the Home Guard, that's committing hate crimes on Babylon 5 against... Uh, there's this famous poet uh, on the station at the time, a Mimbari poet. Um, he flat out just stabs her and then brands her uh, in the head. Then there's this also a pair of young Centauri older teenagers that are uh, in love, and apparently that doesn't follow through with the Centauri way of marriage so they actually get attacked as well and um, who else gets attacked Bob in this uh
0: I don't think we see any other direct attacks but uh there's dialogue from like Sinclair and Garibaldi that make it seem like hate crimes are like a growing concern on the station and like the number of incidents has really ratcheted it up in the past couple of weeks. But I, unless I'm forgetting something, I think all we see are the Minbari poet and the two uh, young Centauri lovers get attacked. And then we also see um, a couple of Drazi aliens attack um, a human racist. Although to be fair, they don't really know that the human is racist. They, when they attack him, they just attack him because he's human <laughs> in retaliation for the other alien attacks. So yeah, it, it, yeah in general, true. it's a sort of kind of pressure cooker situation.
1: So, yeah, so basically the, the famous poet, the Mambari poet gets attacked, and then you have uh, the Romeo and Juliet of the uh, Centauri gets attacked. And from there, um, Sinclair and uh, Ivanova, they go undercover to try to figure out who is doing this and if there's a bigger plot on the station that's uh, taking place.
0: And then uh, in the B-plot, we've got uh, Ivanova's ex-boyfriend from eight years ago, uh, Australian Malcolm Biggs, uh, shows up on station to uh, set up his business, which I don't think what his business is is ever explained, but he arrives on the uh, station to set up business, and uh, he attempts to reconnect with Ivanova.
1: I thought his business was Ivanova, Bob. Maybe, maybe. So what
0: do you think of uh, Jakar's role in this episode, Matt?
1: He tries to instigate a riot. And I thought it was awesome. He, uh, <laughs> him standing up there, just like, "Oh yeah, let's go get this. Let's get let's get this rolling. Let's, let's let's start something on the station. Let's take over. This is they're out here killing aliens. They hate us. Let's let's do something." How he immediately like stood down though when they said they were going to throw the break. <laughs> it, was, it was almost <laughs> it was almost funny, but I mean, like I don't know. It was funny because I'm laughing about it now, but it just it it cracked me up. Like, okay, you can either go to your quarters and we'll just pretend this was just a, an issue that. Or we can, I go put you in the brig and you can be tried for your crimes or whatever. I'm inciting a riot.
0: Yeah, yeah.
1: (laughs) Yeah, it's sort of interesting that you get a lot
0: of, uh, you get a lot of sense of like alien solidarity in this episode or like non-human alien solidarity, which isn't necessarily like an intuitive thing because you know, like the Centauri and the Narn hate each other for obvious reasons. And then, you know, we've seen like uh, Jakar have real strong tensions with uh, Ambassador Delenn, the Minvari ambassador in prior episodes. So in in some ways, it doesn't make sense that all the aliens would band together. But in other ways, it kind of does make sense when you have like, it seems like, you know, you have a, a human majority on the station and then large groups of others like Centauri, Drazi, Minbari. Um, and so it does seem like the sort of incidents of the hate crimes do kind of create this like non-human coalition, which is a sort of, know, it was just a sort of like interesting portrayal of like, you know, what are supposed to be analogous to racial tensions, but, you know, projected into the future and projected among alien species.
1: I didn't look close enough, but during the, during the riot scene, the aliens that he was talking directly to were any of them um, members of the council?
0: I doubt it. I doubt it. I I didn't pay. I didn't think pay. they were. Yeah, I didn't pay that close attention to who uh, the crowd Jakar was addressing was, but I would be really surprised. Oh, do you, but do you mean like the main council of the of the five? Not the powers? main council,
1: but the actual the species. Oh, the, the
0: League of Nine. Oh yeah. I think, but I'd honestly, I'd have to go back and look. I didn't pay that much attention. That's a, that's a good right, point.
1: I'd have to go back and look at that too, because I, I I'd be surprised if they were. Yeah, Jakar cracked me up at this part. I, I, he, he was, a, that was a surprising, uh, a yeah, surprising role there. Yeah. Even I, if it was kind of short-lived, it was awesome. I almost would have appreciated
0: if, it, if the sort of anti-alien violence had been like an occasion for, Jakar and Londo to make some sort of temporary alliance like that would have been potentially pretty interesting where they have to set aside their animosity you know because of the more immediate threat of these human hate crimes although they have Londo so preoccupied with like his sort of regrets about you know how he's chosen to live in accordance with the Centauri tradition that they don't really ever go there.
1: Yeah Londo was too worried about his shoes being tight and not remembering how to dance.
0: Yeah, yeah, you get the feeling that screenwriter thought that was a, a really evocative uh, monologue. I, I, I don't think I shared the screenwriter's opinion.
1: Of that I didn't either. I didn't either. It was it was odd. It was an odd. Yeah.
0: We do. Uh, we did get our first look at uh, Lando's three wives uh, from the three-part picture frame on his desk, um, and uh, we get the great line from Lando that uh, their personalities could shatter entire planets. So that's that's a
1: good teaser for uh, a fun future episode. Yeah, and their names were Pestilence, Famine, and
0: Death. <laughs> Not I actually. I died like,
1: die laughing. Yeah, so,
0: not but, actually their names, but a really good joke. <laughs> I know, I know, it
1: was hilarious. That's how he referred to them. He referred to them as that. And he had a little picture of them. That did you, did this give you any
0: sort of insights into Centauri culture? This this whole episode and the subplot with the lovers.
1: Yeah, it really changed. I mean, because if you look back at the uh, the, the purple episode, the purple file, born where to the purple, is in love with the uh, Centauri uh, slave. And you you get a sense that they're like a very romantic kind of culture like they're, you know, that there's like some and it kind of fits with with Londo's personality. But then you have this and you find out that everything's an arranged marriage and there's not really that that sense of romance in it at all. It's it's it's, it was different. It kind of changed my uh, my understanding of their culture.
0: Yeah, although I think in Born to the Purple, it, it does make pains to kind of show that Londo is caring for his dancer, uh, Adira, like in defiance of like Centauri custom and Centauri tradition. True. So broadly, you, you get the sense that the Centauri are supposed to sort of be Roman Empire-like or like Venice Republic-like. Is that is that the kind of broad cultural connections you see to the Centauri so far?
1: Oh, yeah. Even the way they dress, I mean, you just see it like, yeah 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 interesting interesting
0: well then the last point I wanted to cover on this episode was it is sort of interesting so Sinclair is uh going undercover with Ivanova to try to try and infiltrate the home guard and he's posing as this sort of bitter uh bigoted military commander but it's interesting that he maybe draws on some like real bitterness when he's like performing like his cover and he kind of talks about the Earth-Minbari war. And, you know, he, he says, quote, the Minbari let us win the war. And that victory tasted like ashes. And it's just sort of interesting to have him draw on that, like, potentially real source of bitterness in order to be persuasive
1: in his cover. Right. And even when he's at the council, they're having that uh, get together or whatever. And he's discussing uh, with the that, I can't remember the name of the race, but of the species, but very short with her. You remember that? And mm-hmm. the yeah, way was yeah. listening in. It surprised me what he says there that he's willing to go so far into his cover that early on and in public. But I mean it works because he has yeah. to try to convince Malcolm. But I was just surprised like he would do that publicly. But maybe that's just how he was making sure that he could prove to Malcolm that you know what he was saying wasn't just you know trying to it wasn't just he, wasn't, he he went full blown undercover at that point.
0: Yeah, and you could easily imagine a scenario where he, he maybe was able to stop the home guard, but he uh, wasn't directly saving that particular ambassador. And so he might have this reputation going forward as a, you know, a human chauvinist or a human bigot. Um, so, it, yeah, it's, it's sort of risky. It, it was an interesting choice.
1: And then there was nothing at the end to uh, really kind of tie up that loose end. So you never see him talk to Dillon about it or anybody else. That well, yeah, matter. but I mean,
0: we see it. We see him saved the same ambassador, so it's you know. that I, I think that kind of takes care of itself in terms of the episode plot. Uh,
1: I like to have a cut and dry, Bob. <laughs> it's only forty three minutes, Matt. Yeah, I know. I know. We need. <laughs> we need that thing. We've got to have that scene. All
0: right. So, did you want to walk us through the uh, a plot on the Deep Space Nine uh, episode nineteen duet, Matt?
1: Sure. Uh, Kira leads an investigation to determine the identity of the Cardassian visitor who seems to have a syndrome that is only contracted from a mining accident at the uh, Galatet labor camp from the Cardassian occupation of the Yeah.
0: Yeah. So this was like a really interesting setup, right? Like a large, not the whole episode, but a large part of it is interrogation scenes between um, Kira and the Cardassian who At various points is, you know, thought to be a file clerk who was at the Galatep labor uh, camp, uh, Eamon Maritza. At other points, he's thought to be um, the camp commander, uh, Trakel Darheel, who is, you know, has a reputation for being the butcher of Galatep. And then at other points, it seems like there may be something else or some other agenda that the Cardassian has and so you've got a really kind of heavily acted um scenes between Nana Visitor, Kira and what's the name of the uh actor who played um Maritza slash Darheel Matt?
1: Uh Harris Ulan.
0: Yeah and you you recognize him from stuff right like
1: I I yeah yeah he was the uh judge on Ghostbusters 2 he's the it's the Scolari brothers that guy. (laughs) <laughs> and he's supposed to be like a hanging judge right so
0: it's kind of uh, ironic that he's you know moving from like a hanging judge to a war criminal potentially
1: yeah basically yeah he, he tries to get the Ghostbusters like put in prison for years yeah <laughs>
0: yeah and so like I, I really did like the interrogation scenes in this episode like it reminded me of Homicide which was the great uh 90s cop show on NBC which heavily relied on interrogation scenes, uh, especially from people know, may know Andre Brower from Brooklyn 99, 9 but before he was like the wholesome kind of leader figure on Brooklyn Nine-Nine, he was this really intense homicide detective named Frank Pimbleton who specialty, uh, as he once said, was uh, selling uh, a product to clients for which they have no conceivable use, a long prison sentence and uh, the homicide was in some ways kind of like a predecessor to The Wire, which was the really popular uh, cop show on HBO in the 2000s. But it's a little different than homicide because in homicide it's like, it's usually two detectives and a suspect at a table in a kind of very enclosed interrogation room. Whereas here, it's usually the Cardassian, either Maritza or Darheel is standing in his holding cell. And then Kira is either sitting at a desk like in the broad common area, of the security office or she's standing and so there's not a lot of like, shots with kira and uh darheel in the same frame there's a lot of switching back and forth between them so it's it's not quite as like intimate or as intense as a homicide interrogation scene but it's it's still pretty well done
1: yeah and it gave uh harris eulen a chance to really like uh, move around a lot and when he's discussing what he's talking about that that actor is very like intense uh, which I, I guess is probably why he was chosen for this role. Just the way he, the changes in his tone of voice, the constant like way he goes up and down with like his, uh, his emotions. You can tell yeah. he's a troubled person.
0: Yeah, and it's really cool because he also, he he plays these really intense scenes like when when he's pretending to be Darheel or thinks he's Darheel, he's really going over the top is kind of like mm-hmm. this, you know, brutal brutal totalitarian Nazi-like character, but then he, he'll also like do it, he'll also do subtle things to make the whole performance seem off, right? Like, so there, I think there's some like subtle clues in his acting that it's like, he's not exactly who he's presenting himself as. And there's, you know, there's something a little wrong or a little off about like when he's performing as heel or when he's, when he you know, when he's lying to Cisco and Kira early in the episode, it he's it's really clear that he's like intentionally making very obvious lies, and yeah so there's just a couple of layers of intention to the performance it's kind of interesting to track
1: what were your thoughts on the ending when he uh when kira pretty much just switches to say okay he's a good person overall it, it-
0: yeah I, I mean i thought that was like really shitty honestly like i think it kind of betrays the really good work that nana visitor and uh harris Yulin did in the episode yeah you know, to f- to spoil it for people the situation is either that uh maritza the file clerk was at the galatep labor camp it seems like we, we have no evidence that he participated directly in any of the atrocities at the labor camp But he did ensure their smooth functioning. He did ensure the administration of the camp. And he felt awful, it would seem, about what went on at the Galatep labor camp. But in a real sense, like his feelings about it are totally irrelevant, I would say. Like, who cares? Like, he was, you know, helping run a forced labor camp that in some cases was an extermination camp. Like, his personal feelings about it have nothing to do with what he did. And for Kira to kind of turn on a dime. And I mean, it, it's one thing to make an interesting point about someone who was complicit in something awful and wants to make good. Like that's an, you know, that's an interesting story, but just to t- turn it on a dime and have Kira suddenly decide, no, actually this is a good person um, because he feels bad about it. I, I just thought that was like kind of obscene, frankly.
1: Yeah, I agree. I, it, it was, it was odd. I mean, if, if you're working in a, in a labor camp like that, I mean, I'm, Maybe he was just down on his luck and needed some money. I don't know. Yeah. It's still, it's it's bad.
0: (laughs) Yeah, it's bad.
1: The fact you go through the trouble of like, you know, changing your face to try to get some atonement, that shows that you probably did something really bad. Like just, you feel bad enough of that much trouble to switch up your your look and try to act as though you were something you weren't. It's a heavy price there. I
0: I think. It's kind of also interesting, and I'm not necessarily making a strong criticism of the episode for this particular fact, but it's interesting that the episode chooses to not go the direction of having like any survivors of the Galatap camp come and identify him or have discussions with him or puncture his story. Right, like it it only chooses to have Major Kira who even though, you know, she was, a, you know, as a Bajoran, she was a victim of the Cardassian occupation, but you know, she wasn't in the camp, she liberated it, right? Um, and so it's sort of interesting that like, the, and I think there's good dramatic reasons that they wouldn't necessarily want to bring in the Galatep survivors. Like the episode makes the most sense as like a two-hander between Major Kira and Maritza. But still it was an interesting choice that it was it was only going to be like, a soldier who liberated the camp and a person who worked in the camp and no one who was actually in the camp.
1: Do the Cardassians like, do they follow conscription? Like, does everyone have to be like a, uh, a member of the, of, of their military?
0: I don't, li- I don't literally know if that's true, but given what we know about Cardassians sort of authoritarian government structure and the sort of their ideology about loyalty to the state above all, it, it seems likely that conscription plays a role.
1: See, that makes sense. Like, I guess that would just mean that he, you know, he was part of their military. It, it just, everybody's involved with it. Uh, I mean, I, I would, I, I kind of need to go back and read a stitch. I need to read a stitch in time since now that I've got the digital copy and see if uh, that sheds some light on that. I'd be interested to know.
0: Yeah, I don't, I don't know how directly Garrick was involved in the Cardassian occupation. And uh, yes, I'm not, I'm not really sure how much a stitch in time would would cover, cover that. that. It might it might, or it might not, I'm really not sure. Um, I, I think there is a trilogy that's a bit of a prequel that talks about the occupation um, that was maybe done by like Judith and Garfield Reed Stevens maybe, but mm-hmm. I, I've, I've never read it and I'm not that familiar with how it covers the occupation. That, that actually does make maybe a good pivot point to um, Another thing that like, I, you know, I, said, I, I don't want to get too hard on DS9 because I think it's a great show with great actors. But one of the things like on the conceptual level that's always been a little odd is that Odo continues to be the chief of security, both under the Cardassian occupation and now under the Bajoran reconstruction. And it just, it, it seems maybe a little unbelievable that Odo could be, a police officer in that, you know, at the headquarters of the Cardassian occupation of Bajor and not be, you know, culpable or, you know, tied up in some of the, in some of the oppression or atrocities that the Cardassians do against the Bajorans. And so that's always been kind of a little weird thing about the show. And I mean, like, you know, the show always like shows Kira and Odo as, great friends and I think the few times they do refer to Odo's role in the occupation they always like stress that like oh he was like a kind of neutral guy and the Bajorans thought they could trust him and that you know he would be fair but I don't know it still just seems like a little a little bit weird of a thing and so in this episode they try to deal with that because you see Odo calling uh, Dukat the former ruler of Bajor and trying to get more information about whether or not uh, the Butcher of Galatep, Darheel, is dead. And you get a sense of, like, the old Odo-Jukat antagonism. And so that, that was a sort of interesting scene. Did you have any thoughts on that, Matt?
1: I, yeah, I always thought it was weird, too, because I, I could not understand how Odo could have lived on a Cardassian run station and still, you know, maintained his his neutrality. I don't think it's possible. I really don't.
0: Yeah, yeah, and I mean it's 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 not something I think we should stress too much because like you know Odo's a really interesting character and it's a really good show and you know you can you can always nitpick anything to death but I I just think that's a sort of it's an interesting point to bring up here because you know the issue is also explicitly raising that you know the issue of uh, Maritza's culpability and what he was a part of at the labor camp so bringing up Odo's culpability as a cop on Tarak Noor yeah, I just think it's a kind of interesting
1: connection. Do you think uh, Odo probably just hung out in his office most of the time when they were in his occupation? <laughs> <laughs> he was one of those guys. He just yeah. like. Yeah, uh, uh, there's Odo. He's locked in his office again.
0: <laughs> <laughs> maybe I don't know. Maybe he's supposed to be like. Have you ever seen the the famous 1940s movie Casablanca? Yes. Um, like maybe his role in the occupation, you're supposed to think of him like the uh, the French cop played by Claude Rains in Casablanca, right? Where may, maybe right, that yeah. yeah, maybe that was more like the Cardassians wanted to have like the illusion of Bajoran you know sovereignty or Bajoran participation in the occupation, and so they allowed they, they, you know they allowed Bajorans to still like nominally run. A puppet government and a puppet security force and so maybe you can imagine odo if he's like the chief of like the puppet regime security on ds9 may have a little bit more freedom of action than you would think of him if you just imagine the situation is like ducat is in cisco's role and odo reports to ducat are there any any
1: books that cover this
0: i'm sure there are but i don't know what they are offhand
1: yeah if you're listening to this and you know any, please like, you know, put in comments somewhere, because I'd be interested to read a little bit about Odo's adventures before, during the Cardassian occupation. And
0: I mean, I think we we do get a couple of time travel episodes back to the occupation, right? Although I, I, I can't remember that they very specifically cover Odo's role in it, but I think that it, that is something that we have to look forward to.
1: I'd just be interested to see if it's like, if it's almost like mirror universe Odo at that point.
0: There's definitely the thing where Odo kind of stays in that role, right, and becomes a collab. He, he remains security chief once the Dominion occupy the station, and he becomes a collaborator with the Dominion at that point. So it's right. a it's a it's, it's a common thing for Odo. <laughs> he Go fits ahead. the whole
1: face the, the whole faceless thing. He it just fits it. Just
0: yeah, yeah. Not it's not killed. only is he physically a shapeshifter, but he's a political shapeshifter who can yes. you know fit into at least three different regimes on Bajor. Although, I guess in the Dominion occupation, like, the Dominion is committed to nominally respecting Bajoran neutrality, so that that also probably gives Odo a, a fair amount of room to maneuver.
1: He's, he's just trying to get paid. <laughs> Dude just wants his pension, man. Can you imagine that, like, retirement meeting, though, like, what that would look like with Odo, you know? <laughs> like
0: going through the size. <laughs> yeah, I, I'm just imagining like him having to negotiate with like the Cardassian Union Pension Board, the Dominion uh, Pension
1: Board, and the Bashora <laughs> Militia Pension Board. <laughs> it was the same station. I wore the same outfit. <laughs> Slept in the same bucket. <laughs> oh man do you think uh instead of a gold watch he'll
0: he'll finally get that latinum plated bucket that cork offered him for his retirement gift
1: this retirement gift and needs a poster in his office of it you know just hanging up there like us
0: <laughs> oh man he, he names uh the bucket ss live forever and then it gets really <laughs> wrong <laughs> yeah it's- Oh, man. I really do hate dogging on him because he's one of my favorite
1: characters. But it's, it's, oh, a yeah, it's, a, it's, it's a, weird he's a great character. character. Yeah. yeah. He's a great character. He just has some, it's just some weird stuff that they quite iron out with him. Yeah. Never. Yeah.
0: Um, I guess since we're on the, the subject of like characters, um, y- you've said earlier that you really haven't been digging uh, season one, Major Kira. Does this, uh, does this episode do anything? To sort of get you in a better place, or is it? Is it still? You're still not digging her character at the moment.
1: Uh, she's warming up to me on this one. I, I, how she handled Maritza, I think that was a, a good part. Really showed her character and just going back and forth. The, the exchange she had between them showed a lot.
0: Yeah, and it's like even even if the character isn't fully like all there now, I'm I'm not sure if I would say that the character is or not. But like clearly, this was like a great episode for Nana Visitor. Like she she does a hell of a job. It's also interesting that she basically does the same trick um, in this episode that Cisco chews her out for in past prologue, where she like you know she appeals up the chain. <laughs> in in this case, instead of going to the Starfleet admiral like she did in past prologue to get um, sanctuary for one of the uh, one of the former Resistance fighters, she goes to the Bajoran minister of state uh, to you know kind of get him to call Cisco and uh you know say oh we're really looking forward to you turning over the prisoner and it's kind of interesting that in this situation given the stakes of possibly getting a war criminal from this brutal labor camp that like the show and cisco don't really seem to mind her going behind his back and up the chain of command whereas you know in past prologue like cisco really dresses her down for going up the chain
1: yeah i feel like Nana visitor is like the original karen
0: <laughs> I think that's a little unfair. She's much cooler than Karen. <laughs> yeah, but I, mean, I, st- I still see it as like, she has no reason to respect the chain of command, right? Like she she represents Bajoran in interest or her perception of and in interest. And that's, you know, Cisco. I think is sensitive to Bajoran in interest, but, you know, he has the whole like Starfleet Federation thing behind him too. that's not going to have him pursue in his militant or straightforward way uh towards what Kira sometimes
1: wants for Bajor. She, okay, the way you just described it, she is the Bajorran Karen. And that's just, that is exactly what a Karen is.
0: <laughs> I think that's a Karen. I think she's I think she's an effective advocate for the political interest of her government. And I mean, I think that's one of the reasons like d s nine is uh, a little in some ways a better and more politically complex show than something like the Next Generation or the original series because, As as much as I like those two shows, it's like Picard or Kirk show up and they, you know, usually they're either the impartial mediator between two sides who are a little absurd or they're facing off against an enemy species, oftentimes, you know, in very sort of black and white, good versus bad terms. And here you see, like, you have two governments, Bajor and the Federation, that are cooperating, but you also get the sense that, you know, there's no, there's very different real interests at stake. And um there's going to be friction around this real interest. All right. So you, you're sticking to Major Karen
1: at the Bajoran. and I'm, I'm, I'm sticking to Major Karen nurse right now. Yes. <laughs> All right, right now. Fair oh, enough. Fair oh, enough. She'll <laughs> lose that title later.
0: So we're we're pivoting over to uh the to our watch segments. So uh what's up for Thirst Watch uh this week, Matt?
1: Once again, we've got Garibaldi, the king of Thirst here. Ivanova goes on this date with uh, Malcolm and it's called uh, Sinclair calls her into action. Cause he needs her to do something. And she shows up at the, uh, at the comm station with her hair down. And of course, creepy Garibaldi has to immediately point it out. <laughs> uh, it wasn't, it wasn't as extreme. It, the thirst was not as extreme as it has been in the past, but it just, he just cannot like a woman cannot be in the same frame as him, without him saying something just terrible.
0: Yeah, I I wonder if there's a subtext, because I think everybody who knows this, uh, who listens to this knows that Sinclair is only the protagonist for season one, and then we'll have a different commanding officer, Sheridan, starting in season Mm -hmm. two. And I wonder, as I recall, maybe I'll be proved correct, or proved incorrect as we keep going, as I recall, um, Garibaldi gets a lot less creepy and a lot less sexual harassy. Um, in season two, I wonder if you can like chalk that up to the new management. Like he was too close to Sinclair, and Sinclair was letting him get away with this shit, and then Sheridan uh, just puts the kibosh on it.
1: Well, I mean, if you if you want to if you want to watch the episode and see how a man should respond to things, look at Sinclair in the scene, and then look at Garibaldi. Okay, Sinclair, he went on the video screen. He saw Malcolm and Ivanova were both in the room together. She shows up with her hair down. He doesn't say a word. He doesn't even acknowledge he saw them together. He just, whatever.
0: Arbaldi, though. Yeah, makes a big deal of it. This is a reoccurring uh, issue with the Babcom system, like regularly on the show, uh, characters come to answer the video screen in, uh, you know, rather uh, delicate uh, situations. Like it's a, it's a common thing. You'd you'd think like maybe they'd re-engineer the video screens where like you couldn't see the background. You could just see the face of the
1: person or something. Great. You bring up a good point too. Speaking of video screens in this episode, we have uh, what has been, um, they created several Babylon Five memes of this, but uh, it's at one point Sinclair visits Kosh, and Kosh and Sinclair are standing in front of a video screen, and Kosh is apparently watching TV, standing up, and he's watching like random scenes of Earth and stuff that's happened.
0: Yeah, isn't it? But, Sinclair <laughs> asking, "What is this?" And Kosh is one nine is efficient.
1: <laughs> yes, that was great. He's, he's was watching. Great. It's just it's these like. Three second clips of different things happening that have happened on Earth in the past. Uh, the scene was weird to me. And I'm I'm glad I'm glad this this is something we probably should discuss earlier, but still I'm glad you we haven't seen Kosh in a while. Kosh and Sinclair are staring at each other, and Kosh makes this point that you know he doesn't he doesn't care about what's going on, on the station. He just wants to watch his TV or whatever. And it cuts to Sinclair's face and then it cuts to Kosh's face and Kosh's mouth, which has very rectal qualities, just starts rotating and looking weird. I don't, I don't understand what's going on there. Then it cuts back to Sinclair and Sinclair's still staring at him. And it cuts back to Kosh and Kosh is still doing the mouth thing. And then it cuts to another scene. And I have no clue what happened there. I'm still confused. I, I mean, I, it, it just makes Kosh more mysterious But at the same time, it also makes them really, really weird.
0: Yeah. So, I mean, I take it to be uh, that Kosh is essentially like a meme lord. And so, you know, he he primarily seems to communicate in like images and cryptic phrases. And I I think, you know, he's already made clear his uh, point to uh, Sinclair that he doesn't really care uh, what's going on. Um, you can maybe also read into that like Kosh is powerful enough that he doesn't really have to worry about this kind of rash of hate crimes. I, I mean, I would have to rewatch the scene to be sure, but as I as I took it, it was just those expressions with the mouth on his encounter suit, or you know, probably just supposed to be like the twitches you would have in anyone's face, you know, just rendered in a particularly weird way because of the suit. Isn't isn't this also? And correct me if I'm wrong, but isn't this also the episode where? Ivanova proposes that um, Kosh may not actually need the
1: encounter suit
0: and the encounter suit may just be like a feint to make the Vorlon seem more
1: mysterious. Yes. Yes. They go back and they talk about uh, actually Sinclair does a really good job in the scene of kind of recapping what happened in the uh, TV pilot and why uh, former uh, people that were occupying the station are no longer there.
0: Yeah, it um, felt like somebody had complained about the plot of the TV movie on a message board. And then the writer like inserted Sinclair and Ivanova's discussion to kind of justify like the assassination attempt on the ambassador in, in the TV movie.
1: Yes, that's exactly it, it really was. It was almost like just a scene of a whole lot of like exposition there. Like, okay, here's here's why would this happen, you know, seven episodes ago.
0: Yeah, I, I am enjoying uh, the the slow roll and mystery on Kosh though, and it you, it is especially amusing like his sort of profession to Sinclair that he doesn't really care about the affairs of other species while he's studying images from Earth and like the sort of intentional contradiction there I think is is creepy and interesting I enjoyed it.
1: Yeah, and we we didn't see Zorak in this episode either, so uh, it's like they it's it's an either or thing. It's either you see Kosh or you see Zorak. May, no, maybe Zorak is
0: Kosh. Man. Maybe uh, maybe uh, that Kosh, uh, is the is the head musician for uh, Space Coast Coast to Coast. You don't know. <laughs> that was a really extensive uh, Thirst Watch that went from Thirst Watch to Vorlon Watch, and then did you want to cover Econ Watch?
1: Right, yeah, Econ Watch. Uh, the only thing they mentioned in these in this episode of uh, Babylon Five, we had the price of coffee. Garibaldi, once again being a, a jerk and a creep, decides that uh, he wants Ivanova to go. He he's too busy to do something, so he wants Ivanova to go do it. And uh, when Ivanova says no, you go do it. Uh, Garibaldi says he's going to stop by some garden and like destroy all the coffee that she's been making illegally on, on the station. And the price of coffee is so high that uh you know that's why they have to grow their own. That was about it for this episode. There wasn't much. There wasn't. There weren't too many things that were mentioned about. As far as how much things cost or, or pricing,
0: yeah, I'm still trying to
1: figure out the exchange rate for a credit though.
0: Well, and that's a the whole thing with the coffee plant, it's a throwback
1: to the TV movie
0: where the original Exo uh, uh, Takashima has a coffee plant, and the impression I got from. Uh, her her offering some of the coffee to Dr. Kyle in the TV movie was it wasn't, she wasn't growing enough coffee that she could use it daily. She was just growing enough to sort of use as like a luxury good or like a treat or like to entertain people with. So yeah, it kind of really does point to like the high price of imports on Babylon 5, which will continue to be a reoccurring motif in the show. Um, and then for the last thing, I wanted to cover Deep State Watch. There's a sort of famous uh, secret history about how the various Allied intelligence services um, smuggled uh, Nazi scientists and Nazi spies out of Europe after World War II, and you know sometimes they use them for the space program, like with Werner von Braun and NASA. Sometimes they, um, sometimes the Nazis slipped down to places in South America, like Argentina, and oftentimes they underwent plastic surgery or underwent. Um, under you know got new identities uh the movie the boys from brazil kind of is a you know science fictional rendering of this uh, sort of historical occurrence and it's sort of interesting that the ds9 episode duet sort of puts that trope of like nazis fleeing to south america or nazis fleeing to work for the cia or nasa on its head and instead we have um we have a very very low level participant in the Cardassian occupation who's used plastic surgery to make himself look like a much more important member of the Cardassian occupation. So it's a, it's a sort of interesting spin on that old, uh, on that old historical and fictional uh,
1: trope. Does that wrap it up for these two episodes you think we're good?
0: Yeah, I think, I think we covered them. Pretty well, pretty well. A lot of great stuff in duet, but I, I really don't think it deserves the reputation it has as one of the best uh, DS9 episodes. I just don't think that's true at all. But um, I, I agree. Yeah, yeah. I'm I'm really glad we uh, got to talk about it in War Prayer, though. So for next time, I think we're, is it episode eight for Babylon Five, Sky Full of Stars, and then we're, do- we're doing the season one finale for ds9 which is episode 20 uh, hands of the prophets so uh catch us next week uh thanks everybody for tuning in appreciate you matt thanks for listening
1: and remember you can follow us on twitter at v5 vsds 9 uh for show notes subscribe to our Substack stack v5 vsds9.substack.com we're available on all major and most minor podcatchers please like and subscribe on your podcatcher of choice if you have a question about either show or anything else you'd like us to tackle leave a five-star review on apple podcast or another podcast take a screenshot email that screenshot to us with your question at b5vsds9 at gmail.com and we will answer your question on the show Uh, we plan to start a patreon with bonus content in the near future so if you have any ideas of stuff you'd like to see for bonus episodes email us at b5vsds9 at gmail.com